Welcome back to How AI Built This, the podcast dedicated to data and entrepreneurial storytelling. As always, we're brought to you by the wonderful people at Cathcart Technology, recruitment experts, and Infer, the startup changing the way that companies do data analysis. Today on the show, I've got Megan Stamper, head of data science at the BBC. Uh, welcome to the show. Cheers, Lynn. Nice to be here. We've genuinely talked about this since May last year. Easily. Easily. Yeah. yeah. Lots of stuff going on, but uh, we finally made it. As I said, you're the head of data science at BBC, but we will start at the start, or at education anyway. So we did about a whistle-stop tour, so we'll do education and career, um, and then how you got into data and all that wonderful stuff. But you uh, you started in maths, right? Like a degree, uh, kind of undergrad in maths at Glasgow. Yeah, I thought you were going to go to like nursery there for a second. But you went to nursery we'll start, in Glasgow. <laughs> we'll start with undergrads. Yeah, I, uh, I chose maths alongside psychology and philosophy the beauty of the scottish undergrads being that you can be quite broad early on uh, and i picked maths so i was quite good at it and i picked the others because i had no idea what they were and i just <laughs> foray into those new subjects but yeah maths really worked for me at undergrad level it was a combination of like the breadth the different fields that you can interact with plus the fact that there was a right answer so when you went into an exam you had that like confidence that there was maybe something you could just know and it was gonna get get you through that's the total opposite of my entire approach like i needed to know that if it wasn't the right answer if i spraffed enough that i might get enough percentage points whereas in mass you're right or you're wrong yeah, I, I feel like philosophy was somewhere in the middle of the two, but I could not handle coming out not knowing whether I'd done all right or not. The self-confidence aspect, not for me. Yeah, I kind of forgot how flexible the first couple of years of uni are in Scotland. Like, you just do anything for two years, and then eventually, in third year, you kind of try and focus a bit more, right? Like, that's how I worked at my uni. It's magic. I really, I really want a four-year undergrad to take over the rest of the world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that that's that's what should happen everywhere. I also said you went to uni in Glasgow, and you didn't. Uh, sometimes people correct me when I say that because I forget there's so many universities. I'm like, yeah, you just did it in Glasgow, like the whole city. But yeah, some people get precious about it. University of Glasgow also pals with University of Strathclyde. You know, across the divide, my dad went there. And nobody talks about Glasgow Cali. Poor, 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 poor uh, Cali. They do great stuff at the Bennett in data science, so I will have no bad words said about Cali. Do you know, I'm just used to Edinburgh, right? Where Less good at football. <laughs> if you don't talk about Edinburgh University at Edinburgh, you just get looked down on. Like, I went to Harriet Watt, and people are like, oh, that's just a college, isn't it? I got that so many times. <laughs> Stop it. Stop it. I feel like Scotland can't get away with being elitist. It doesn't work. No, it's a red brick guinea. I don't really... I still really know what it means. Um, anyway, yeah, you said she ended up focusing on maths and you went down to Cambridge for a master's and a PhD, right? Yeah, it was a bit of a, a curveball for me. So I was finishing up at Glasgow. I had full intentions of going off to work for one of the big accountancy firms. Um, I'd had a great internship, felt right for me. And I'd always said that I didn't quite feel like I was good enough to remain in academia. Um, I had as I kind of alluded to before, a real kind of self-confidence thing of just going where it felt like it was easy to go at, at certain points. And then my dissertation supervisor in the last year of undergrad kind of gave me that talking to of like, what are you actually doing? What are you actually doing here? Is this an intentional choice? Is this where you actually want to go? And then presented me with this course, Cambridge, so it's a master's called part three um, and it is the route into academia if you want to be a mathematician long term and having had that kind of tap on the shoulder and that reassurance of like you can do this if you're serious about it and you want to do it that really changed the path for me and so I applied to do that was really grateful to get in and went and joined I think it's upwards of 250 fellow master students in that program Spent a year feeling so overwhelmed, but found a niche in fluid mechanics and chose to go on and do a PhD after the master's. That's amazing. That's a really interesting and early example in your career anyway, but um, of like having someone to kind of, I don't know, like either an arm around the shoulder or kick up the arse, depending on who they're speaking to, but like that kind of person that can spot like potential, I suppose. Yeah, I think... Um, 
I needed it and I can see there are a lot of people at that point in their kind of journey that need the same you know there are lots of steps that feel quite automatic you know the you get to the kind of second to last year and you're starting to think about internships there are a whole raft of companies who are experts at selling themselves at that level and getting into the kind of campuses and saying come come work with us and if you're not being that intentional and you don't have that confidence to pick a very clear different track you can fall into something and before you know it you've signed yourself up to accountancy exams and and you don't you don't necessarily want to be doing those things it's not they're wrong for everyone but there's a, a kind of a track of is automatic and you don't necessarily have to think that hard about it and it will just happen for you if you're not being intentional and having that person that's there to say do you really want this you do know there's another path and by the way you're good enough to do it for me personally that makes all the difference in the world it made me take a step back and think what is out there on offer if I put in that bit extra effort can I do something that really excites me more and really is right for me I think that's true for plenty of people. So I now on the other side of that, in a kind of more mentorship capacity, I can really spot when people need that. They need either that bit of confidence or they need that nudge that a different path can be possible. Yeah, no, 100%. And it's actually probably, thinking out loud, the one part of like, so obviously I used to work in recruitment, so I saw this a lot, but like it's the one part of a recruitment company that probably doesn't get spoken about enough is speaking to candidates and a, a good example i can think of are like people at mid seniorish level and there's a step up available and like as a recruiter we would contact them and they would be like oh, no 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 that's not for me like i don't have this i've never done that and a big part of a, a good recruitment company or consultant's job is to do that kind of arm around the shoulder and like really encourage people to go for it and so many times we saw that like we would really would help them prepare and give them a bit of encouragement, but they would go and smash the interview, yeah, and and get a job they probably would never have applied for. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's how you end up with diverse teams, and it's how you reassure candidates who, in any way, perceive themselves to be a minority that they belong there. There will always be a group of people who just assume that's the place. Either they've seen it demonstrated for them, they've either got a family member. You know, someone close to them who's just doing that, so it feels normal or it feels more routine. And then there's this whole other group of people who've just never seen that path or assume for some reason they don't belong there, and they do just need that intervention and that nudge of like, "Nope, you're you're good at this, and you should be here. Please think about it." Yeah, and do you think we're getting way off topic already? But it's fine. Do you think the relatively recent rise of like data science courses? As opposed to, because back when I first started recruiting data scientists, it was PhD in maths, PhD in physics, some, something super data heavy just by design, right? But now you can do a PhD in data science or a master's in artificial intelligence or whatever. So you think there's some people, and maybe you'd be an example of this, really good at maths, like that aspect of it. If that was an option, you might have went down that route kind of naturally. And it's maybe encouraged the kind of new batch of people to get into data science because it's now way more obvious yeah i think what i'm a bit worried about though is that 16 17 year old me would have had absolutely no idea that that was definitely the choice for me well i like going back to that very early stage undergraduate and it being able to be dead broad i mean not necessarily having to make a choice that i knew was going to suit the rest of my career that felt like a, the right level of freedom for a 17-year-old. I'm a wee bit concerned that we're asking people at a very early age to specialise or at least think about a specialism that's going to carry them through quite a long part of their career. But I think saying that, when you look at some of the data science programmes, they might have that on, you know, the kind of label of the course and it might it might be the marketing to direct people to apply, but actually they'll have quite foundational courses to begin with so that actually they do get a solid maths and stats background they, they do get that quite wide and well-rounded intro that then lets them jump off and and make the distinction between you know software engineering versus data science versus analytics and keep wide but not as it, it's exciting to see that there is that focus and people can jump straight into that without going to academic yeah i talked about the academic side so I suppose 
first of all, you went from Glasgow to Cambridge. That must, especially you've already said about having kind of some doubts of confidence. That must have been a pretty big deal. Yeah, I didn't realise you could move in the UK and get homesick. It, it was a shock. <laughs> um, it's so far away, though. Like not just literally, but like kind of culturally too. But you sort of imagine like moving to a place that's only a couple hundred miles away. It'll be fine, you know. It's not that big a deal, but stuff really shocked me. It shocked me how much I felt different to be a Scottish person in Cambridge, to be a Glaswegian in Cambridge and to have an accent in Cambridge was, you stood out a bit. Uh, I would get people asking me, oh, say this, say this. We want to hear your funny voice. Uh, I would get endless questions about Scottish politics because it was about a year before Scottish independence referendum. So I became the dinner party go-to on any part of that conversation. Um, and I also feel like there were significant aspects of the differences between the Glaswegian system and the, the Cambridge system, both academically and outside, that were just surprisingly different. I didn't expect there to be a change, and then all of a sudden it was really, really strange. Yeah, Cambridge and its kind of collegiate system, all new to me had no idea. So it was all a bit of a culture shock. That's probably quite unique to Cambridge and Oxford though, right? Like if you went anywhere else in the UK, I'm sure you still would have had some of the same experiences, but like the real like Oxford Cambridge part is only really those two places from from what I know of. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. I think, you know, going to an old university like Glasgow, it gives you some of the grounding in that, you know, you get this like hint that Latin for some reason is still included in things that it makes no sense to be included in and Cambridge loves that uh, so that you know you, you sort of do see with the ancient universities there is a bit of a theme of keeping the cloaks and the Harry Potter style but uh, yeah Cambridge absolutely downs out on that kind of stuff yeah that's fair yeah it's just so funny you mentioned the time you went down because actually at that time I was in Australia in a eight person hostel room and a New York person heard my accent and it was about the time of Scottish independence and he was like so what do you think about it and I was like I'm in Melbourne in a hostel it's like $20 <laughs> a night and some guy in New York is asking me about Scottish politics I was like this is bizarre it was wild because I was like desperately trying to keep a grip on academic studies and make sure that I was like getting up to speed with everything and then I'm getting people asking me to be an expert that I've got absolutely no business being an expert on every time I went out yeah it was a shock and we always ask if anyone's done a PhD and you actually said already that the course you did was like a really good grounding if you wanted to be a academic um, mathematician did you enjoy the PhD and like did you consider that academic postdoc life I certainly went into the PhD thinking that was the future for me. I really looked at the academic lifestyle and being a, being a lecturer and being a researcher and thought, yep, that's what I want to do. For me, I think I got a little bit burnt out through the process of doing my PhD. I think science should be a team sport, but it's not in a lot of places. Um, that's not true everywhere, but... It certainly felt like there were so few positions for postdocs and continuing academic jobs after your PhD that you were just in such a level of competition with everyone that you were an individual first and it was about your own individual contribution ahead of the collaboration and ahead of the kind of relationships and teamwork aspects. And that to me became increasingly stressful towards the end and as you were getting to the end of funding and towards the start of what would be your application journey for all of the next steps which are precarious and often quite short you, you see a lot of postdocs where they're starting a position and they're already having to think about what comes next and which applications and destinations they want to look out for so I think I just found that environment for me personally didn't work it was too it was too much about me as an individual always knowing exactly where I wanted to be and always trying to be like two steps ahead of myself and what I really clearly wanted at that point was to feel part of a team absolutely enjoying the academic contribution I was making and really loving the field that I was in 
but having people around me that were there to support and knowing that I had a, a kind of place in the fields and honestly without knowing where I would end up in industry I could see that the job market outside of academia had some of those aspects and that really appeals. Yes, yeah, I really came up before that PhDs feel like a slightly lonely existence and and are kind of weirdly compared like a kind of unspoken competitive environment too like it's not it's not amazing for that sharing collaboration like you said which is a shame because obviously there's some <laughs> very very clever people who if they work together I imagine would probably come up with some cool stuff you mentioned team a few times and you also mentioned uh football already so you were doing all this whilst uh captain in the university team right is that right not university we're back to the weird collegiate nature of cambridge so i was a captain okay. of my college team which was a position more of necessity than talent as in if i if i wanted there to continue to be a college team there was a point where i just needed to step up otherwise the whole thing was going to collapse and implode on itself but i you know stepped up i really enjoyed doing that i was co-captain with one of my great friends eve um, and we kept the team going and managed to move us up a college league. Nice. Which, absolute small fry, but we were delayed. And does that help with some of the kind of almost loneliness of the PhD that obviously you'd have friends and stuff outside of academia anyway, but having that to fall back on as well must have helped a little bit. A hundred percent. It was at the start, my escape. It was like the one thing, particularly during my master's, it was the one thing I was doing where my mind was nowhere near the pressures of the academic kind of life and as I got further into my time in Cambridge I started um, playing for a kind of local town team and that took it one step further I was then interacting with people who themselves weren't academics and had absolutely nothing to do with the university and that was so refreshing oh my god that gave me like the out that I needed at that particular time to not have people thinking about the essay they had to write or you know all of the kind of nonsense academia I was playing alongside like police officers and teachers and people were real jobs doing actual important stuff and sometimes that's what you need to get get all your stuff put back in perspective again yeah no 100% I remember we're not going to turn I promise we're not going to turn this into a football podcast but we are going to bring it back up later um but one of the things I'll really vividly remember I used to play five aside with my dad and his mates when I was finally old enough to play and uh, one of the main folk that played was a like senior lecturer at a university, and we got chatting about jobs one day, and he was like, "I don't really like talking about jobs." Like we're in the pub after the football, and he was like, "I love fives because it doesn't matter." And it was a really similar experience to you. Like he was probably under mega stress at work, like all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes, and he was like, "Yeah, but we're playing with teachers and students," and he was like, "It's just really cool to be not worrying about that." So yeah, I totally get how that would work. I've got in my notes here that. Before we go into your full-time role after Cambridge, you did an internship at EA at some point. And I'm assuming I've written that down because it's EA Sports, right? Or EA Technology? Yeah, EA Sports. Okay. I said okay, the game. <laughs> when did you do that? What was it? And how did it come about? In a test of my memory, I think I was... I think I've got here, end of master's, start of PhD. That might that's be. right. That's right. End of master's, start of PhD. So I pretty clearly knew I was going to go on do a PhD. I had a summer free at the end of master's before a PhD that I had to do something with. And I think at the time the university was pushing you to look at kind of academic placements and things that would prepare you for a PhD. But someone from the EA uh, physics team managed to sneak in a presentation and it was obviously the coolest thing on offer like you, you know you had all of, all of your different kind of academic departments given their discussion of what you could go and spend your months doing and then EA and I'm like that's the one that's the one for me uh applied for that they obviously wanted someone who had a skill set I didn't have as in you know professional coding had an idea what game design was like some inkling about how game physics worked and I think I think I might have bombed the interview but like managed to just about talk myself around at the very last stage and I'm really really grateful that they took a punt because 
honestly before I spent a bit of time working there so it was game physics it was all to do with trying to embed um the kind of mathematical physics world with game design and kind of real-time computation and until I spent a bit of time there I don't think I'd ever properly coded before I'd done that little dabbling that you do of you know html and trying to make you know nice websites for yourself and all the things that you did when you were a kind of 90s kid but I didn't actually know what coding was and and it grounded me absolutely perfectly for my PhD which ended up being in computational fluid mechanics like it was the internship of dreams for what came next no it was it was like many of the choices that I've made the whole way through just something that sounded a bit cooling out there that I didn't particularly know whether or not I was going to have the right skills for but somehow landed in it and it was really really good so many show episodes on this podcast have been like the next decision was a little bit random I kind of went for it turned out really good there's a lesson there right <laughs> yeah. yeah I think I think we've had one and I actually can't remember who it is so that's really bad but I'm sure we had one that was like I was going to be a data scientist or something like that and like it was it was it was much more kind of defined as a career path almost everybody else has kind of like ended up here somehow okay so we've made it we've done a bit of football a bit of uni we're into industry post-academic life and you ended up at the financial times of all places how did that come about uh again it was a wee bit random um i got to last kind of stages of phd it was really clear to me I was going to be leaving academia. Um, I remember the tough conversation with my supervisor who clearly wanted me to hang around and do a postdoc where I sort of landed that news and said, no, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to be looking for a job elsewhere. But I really didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know what was out there. I had a really broad look at all the different opportunities that were available for graduates of any nature across, you know, the usual spots. There's lots of stuff in kind of finance and consultancy and I think I read well over a hundred job adverts for different graduate programs and it was reading the advert for data scientist at BFT where I was like oh no this actually sounds really exciting and like a thing that not just is a job I want to do but also is something where I can see that every skill I've spent the last four or five years honing and getting really good at is going to be immediately useful. Whether that's the ability to take data and tell a story with it, which I've been doing, okay, granted it was applicable to ocean fluid mechanics, but also the kind of really deep kind of computational skill sets and the engineering know-how and how to use high-performance computing and all of these things that I just can accidentally been picking up because they were necessary to do a PhD. The job description of a data scientist, it was like, it's like I've been training for this despite not knowing it existed. And so that's yeah, that's that where sense. that came from. Also, you were probably done a favour by the graduate job specs you read because they're all just terrible. <laughs> like all the graduate schemes are so bad. So if you read a good spec or a good role, you just instantly get drawn to it because they're all just so terrible. Anyway, that was by the by. Um, <laughs> yeah. A question I've not asked before, probably because I think I know the answer, but do you know when you finished a PhD in something like what you've done, really specific um, fluid mechanics, all the skills you learned, is it a case of, you've now just applied those learnings in a broad sense to the FT, to the BBC, to your your work life. And do you just never really, like, do you keep up with it? Or do most do you think most people who've done a PhD is so specific for that time that they use the broad skills and the actual topic probably just goes by the wayside? I'd say the topic... What's kind of strange about academia and doing a PhD and data science is that you're building up a set of skills that can be applied to pretty much any industry or any problem that you can imagine. So even if I'm doing a PhD and it's focused on trying to find something about oceanographic fluid mechanics, which was my focus area, 
the skills needed are so relevant to pretty much any space of academia where computational modeling is relevant. And if you're in if you're in data science, I've been in media the entire career that I've had. But if I was doing data science for any industry, the kind of skills that I'd be exercising would be the same. And the domain in which I apply them, to me that's like the special like fun layer of it. Like I really like working in media because it is such a nice domain to be a part of. But the skills are the same if I was gonna be doing that for, you know, an energy uh, company or if I was gonna be doing that in finance and banking, I'd I kind of be exercising the same knowledge and skills at the core level. Yeah. Yeah, folk always get really hung up and we'll talk about it when we if we get time to chat about hiring and recruitment, but folk get hung up often about it'd be really good if they had media industry exposure as a data scientist and i always used to push back on that in, in my old role where i surely that part's the least important part like they'll they'll pick that up by working with you they might not pick up all the really really relevant others if they don't have the other skills already then that's harder to pick up right i totally agree i don't think it's because those things aren't important but it's because whatever that industry is they're gonna have your subject matter experts who are not data scientists that you can pick that knowledge up from. You know, I'm not going to be walking into media pretending that I know the journalistic skill set or that I know the media environment as well as others will. But I'm confident, oh, and I'm joining a place like the BBC, I can find that and I can add the data science skill set. Yeah. Also, it's a surefire way to end up hiring a bit of an echo chamber, like people that have only worked in broadcast media to work in my data science team like it's a pretty small pool so yeah no, it's, it's, you're exactly you're exactly right so we've actually had the i don't think you crossed over but the the new director of data science um at the ft leon fitzpatrick's been on the show a couple of times and we had a really good chat about how the ft is actually a relatively well like a really kind of modern organization but people from the outside and i'm not sure when you joined in 2018 like did you have any like trepidation that you were joining like the last of the big massive broadsheet newspapers that like your granddad read you don't know my granddad very well there's not a chance he'd be reading the ft <laughs> he thought when i was in my phd that i was just doing really long sums <laughs> Any, anyway we won't criticize my granddad's newspaper reading habits um i had some concerns like that but i think the ft was one of the first newspaper organizations to make a play on digital news uh ft.com i think was like a one of the first if not the first um online news presence for subscription model journalism they also as an organization had a chief data officer before it was cool to have chief data officers i feel like from a external point of view you you don't necessarily see that but if you're to think about your kind of experience of social media at the moment and what news comes across your feed and and particularly what visual data journalism comes across, the FT is punching well above its weight. And that's what I remember going into interview being like, the thing that's drawn me here is that you tell a story with data more compellingly and convincingly than I've seen across the rest of the market. So something about your data maturity even just as a reader that I'm spotting that makes us feel like it's probably going to be an exciting space. Yeah, I, I don't know how that comes across kind of to the wider public, but that was certainly my perception. Even at that kind of point where I was an outsider, I could still see it. There was something a wee bit special there. Nice. And you did you move to London for that role? I almost did, but I am not a London city person I, I don't think i could live there and maintain a happy balanced mental health so i actually chose to live in tunbridge wells in kent lovely lovely okay. green slightly hilly space i'd spent maybe too long in cambridge with no hills and as a scottish person I was like slightly allergic to that so going to kent was a place to get hills and access to london all in one neat package yeah, that makes sense 
Um, yeah, I was going to say, it must have been that. I actually thought London might almost be better as a Scottish person because there'd be others. Um, so you, your accent might not stand out. That is definitely but. true. I definitely have to say of my colleagues at the FT, they never got me to say things specifically in my accent. Like like purple burglar alarm or whatever the people I see at Scottish folk to say. Yeah, I refuse to say that. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna like trot them out because it's too embarrassing. Yeah, no, it's impressive. Actually. What was it? I've learned a new one that I, I personally can't say. So if you're to make something operational, you're to operationalize it. It's got a ruled R in it that trips me up ninety five percent of the time. So if you want to trip up, trip up your Scottish colleagues, just put that in a sentence and get them to Has to, to say operationalise. Yeah, that's quite hard. I've noticed that since uh, having my daughter that some books have phrases that obviously weren't written by Scottish people because I can't do it. I'm not even going to go into them because it's very niche content for an AI podcast, but um, I'll tell you after. There's one that really annoys me. You decided after, even with the leafy hills of Kent, that you wanted to come home, right? So there was a point in, in that journey where you wanted to come back to Scotland and I think from when we chatted ages ago, you said that there wasn't really that many kind of senior principal data science rules that, I suppose there's two things, there wasn't that many rules and there probably wasn't that many rules that made it compelling enough to leave such a good place like the FT, right? So that's two hard things to juggle. Yeah, I mean, I was sitting in a job I loved in a team that was fantastic, uh, so supportive, absolutely loved working there. So it wasn't every day that something I was reading as an alternative opportunity was really that compelling. You know, there wasn't there wasn't much of a pull to go anywhere else. Uh, but I do really specifically remember seeing the data science position come available at the BBC with the Glasgow location attached to it. And for me, it was a couple of things. One, it was that there was a continuation of being in the media space that I absolutely loved. Like, it just... It suits me to see to be that close to like this real cultural richness. And then the fact that it had Glasgow on the job advert, I just I couldn't dream that I was able to do what I was doing not in London. Like I think he kind of he went through all of um your kind of education in Glasgow and there were certain things that would allow you to stay in Glasgow and there were certain career choices that just almost you built in the expectation you're going to have to move away from home and you're going to have to either go to London or somewhere far away and I kind of just like without being conscious of it built that expectation in that if I was going to get to do a career I was really excited about for some reason that was incompatible with being able to return to home and, and be in Glasgow so when a, a kind of opportunity arose that made it kind of clear that that assumption wasn't true anymore that there was an option other than that I absolutely threw myself at it I, I don't think I've ever applied to a job more quickly obviously checking with my partner that he as a man from the, the northeast of England was happy moving to Glasgow oh he's much closer to home in the northeast like culturally location like like physical miles so that'd be fine yeah you know when you think someone's going to be not okay with the thing and then you say it out loud and they're like oh no actually that's also great he also likes hills he also likes being in in the countryside so it does so it does both win-win yeah and was glasgow a new thing for the bbc because you know how they've just opened in leeds and stuff oh wait no i said before but they've opened hubs in manchester now they've got um others was glasgow new is that why you were so surprised to see the advert or had you just not um did you just not know they had technical people in, in glasgow so the glasgow office for the bbc is like bbc scotland's kind of main office but it's been um predominantly like broadcast um folk that are based there i think the increased amount of people that were working in engineering there coupled with them just starting to make some of the first data hires in scotland that was new so i joined a team of i think it was five when i first began of data scientists specifically who'd all been kind of appointed within the last 12 months max there was something new about that aspect for sure nice and you joined as principal data scientist right um but as kind of luck or not luck would have it it was pretty much like 
COVID time. So, like, did you have to? Did had you moved pre lockdown? Oh yeah, I uh, moved in November twenty nineteen. Okay. Enjoyed what would it be four months? So yeah, three four months. Yeah, getting to know an office and having colleagues and it actually being a meaningful thing to be based in Glasgow to all of a sudden. Oh, I've I've moved and I don't actually need to go to an office anymore. This this was a bit silly, but I the pandemic experience in the BBC. I think like a lot of places, the positive side to that, if you're to try and hunt for it, was that it broke down some of the location boundaries, particularly like projects. So it might be the case that we had this brand new data science team in Glasgow, but we might work or we might have tended to work as much more of a kind of siloed team doing things that were separate to colleagues that were based in Salford or London or wherever else. And as soon as pandemic came along and, and brought everyone into kind of home working uh, patterns, remote working patterns, it meant that those barriers no longer meant anything. If you wanted to work on a project, it just so happened your colleagues in London were interested. You just joined forces and, and, kind of equaled the playing field a little bit between all those different off-season regions. Yeah, especially I imagine in the, maybe not BBC specific, but like big companies where if they started in London and they kind of got regional hubs in Manchester, regional hub in Glasgow, almost some of the hubs might feel like London gets all the, the cool stuff. Like they've got the original data exactly. team, they've got the original product team. So like you almost get kind of like you get a field of the stuff that's maybe not as cool or, or whatever. But like, yeah, COVID meant that everyone worked on everything or could work on everything. Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't at the BBC long enough before all of that change started to take place to know how entrenched things like that were. But I know prior to moving, you know, even when I was speaking to others in London, the assumption was that if you moved outside of London, your career is going to take a hit. Leadership might be harder for you to attain. Strategic projects might be slightly more distant from you. There was definitely that feeling like to be further away might give you the work-life balance you were after, but it was going to somehow impact or hinder your career trajectory in some sense. And I think the pandemic didn't completely eradicate that, but it certainly made people think about, does it have to be that way? Are there ways we can be more kind of inclusive and I think the BBC has really kind of lent into that. Well, actually, there's talent all across the UK. There are people doing great things to exclude them because the location is actually harming us and the value we can get. Let's not do it anymore. And that's been massive. That's really good. Yeah, I don't think I would have got the job I'm now doing without the pandemic. Like, there are startups, so there's always a bit extra flexibility. But without the pandemic, would it have been fully remote? Like, I don't know. Like, you, you never know, but it's almost, it's so much more accepted now. So you're now head of data science for the BBC product group, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Um, was there something about, similar to the FT, was there any hesitation in going to the BBC because of how that organisation is structured? Like, it's, it's very different, right? Like, it's publicly funded. There's lots of, there's probably lots of things you need to understand in the BBC which are maybe not relevant elsewhere. So, like, was there anything in your head that was thought, that might be quite tricky or was it the pool of the data problems and the and the kind of i don't know the reputation of the bbc more than enough to get you on board anyway i have to say at the time i wasn't really thinking about those as hindrances i was thinking more about this is a scale of opportunity and a customer base i can only dream of there was like a, a scale to the challenge that felt really exciting um i think Looking back and with what I know now, there are lots of things about it that are really complicated. You know, the scale of the audience does not scale with the amount of people we have in the organization doing the work. If you look at a lot of competitors and a lot of people in the wider market, you know, often you're talking about them having hundreds of data specialists and data scientists working on different problems. And we don't always have the luxury of that. And sometimes that's really challenging because additional people and additional time to think about things could accelerate stuff. But often that has its own positives of, well, we need to do things a bit more thoughtfully and we need to really kind of focus our time. You don't get to go off and work on 
a passion project without it being very clearly valuable to the organization. So yeah, there's like infinite R and D time in the BBC. Like there's 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 projects, right? Like you need to get stuff done. Yeah, and so it kind of for me moving out academia and being really really clear that I want I want whatever I do to have impact and to be valuable and for people to see that it is worthwhile doing. Those pressures kind of help make sure they're the kind of check and balance that makes you have to think about those things and have to get that right. I think for other people that would be a real pain point um, and the other thing that now very conscious of is that it is an incredibly historic organization and again reflecting on things like what we spoke about with the AST that's not often a hindrance sometimes that's fantastic to have that weight of cultural history behind things but sometimes there are nuances and ways that things have been done that you just can't get your head around it's been done that way for 20 years and you are not entirely sure how or why and whether it can be unraveled and getting your head around that can be challenging the the kind of deep cultural or kind of history about organizations it's kind of followed you about right you've had cambridge university like mega the ft been around forever and now the bbc like just it's, it's interesting it's just happened that way yeah i think it's uh, interesting to me because the kind of historical we do things because that's the way they've always been done mindset is something that I find really troubling it's really it's really shit to be to be like in a place where you're told you can't do a thing because it's not the done thing it's that's just absolutely not it's not in me to just accept that that's the answer so it is absolutely strange it is absolutely strange to kind of find yourself in a position where you keep finding yourself in places where that might be the reception to a new idea or that might be the response you get when you propose something new. But I think maybe I'm just a little bit belligerent and I don't accept that answer and I always... Belligerent's maybe not it. It's optimism. I always very optimistically believe that people can have their mind changed and that no matter the historic momentum behind something, if it's not the right way to do things it can then be untied and unraveled and you can find a way through. Next stop is a uh, chief data officer of the RNA, probably <laughs> the oldest golf organization in the world, just to, take, just to get more history in you. So actually, we've not really talked about head of data science at the BBC in the product group. What, what, are your, what does your team look after? Like, what do you guys do? Uh, we are growing really rapidly. So the things we have been looking after and doing for quite a long time are predominantly in the kind of recommendations and personalization space. So trying to take account of the fact that the BBC has a bit of something for absolutely everyone, but at a slightly unmanageable scale. Like if I just put the entire BBC content catalogue in front of you and said, go find what you need, it's a bit overwhelming. And trying to use data science to really tailor that offering and make sure that people are getting what they need from it as people are finding the thing that things that speak to them and the things that are really there for them to get enjoyment out of you know if if you're a massive nfl fan we've got a surprising amount of content in there for you but you might not immediately know about it so that's to it for bread and joy i really didn't know that <laughs> yeah we've got no i'm not an nfl fan so <laughs> um, i hadn't really thought about it until you said a minute ago about the scale of the bbc data science team versus others because essentially like iPlayers competing with like Netflix and Now TV and like these ginormous organizations, which I hadn't really considered as a competitor to the BBC, but it totally is, right? Yeah, I think you you look at some of the budgets that are going behind new shows and in some cases they're nearly equivalent to the entire annual budget of the whole organization of the BBC and that is a bit scary. That's the Lord of the Rings one was like a billion quid. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's what we are kind of trying to do absolutely everything across radio, news, sport, weather and iPlayer. Like that's that's scary. That's really, really scary. But we managed to make a lot happen despite that. Like if you look at the offering we have on BBC Sounds and the amount of personalization that we managed to get like productionized in that space it is kind of 
wild what we managed to do with the budget that we have and the number of data scientists. They are a special bunch. No, that's awesome. Um, and we've talked about the team already um, a little bit, but in terms of hiring and recruitment, I know you're you're always doing lots of it anyway. And um, we've talked, you and I talked about data engineering a while ago um, and where that fits. But in terms of hiring for the BBC, is it an interesting challenge? Because, well, one, you probably don't have the budgets of the Amazons of the world um, and the problem space is similar. And two, I suppose location is less of an issue now, right? Because you, your team can be Manchester, London, Glasgow. So you've got a really nice pool of people to speak to. H- how do you go about growing like a really high quality data team? I find it is getting easier and easier. I think the amount of education opportunities, the amount of organisations that are giving people experience that's relevant is growing and growing and growing. I think the amount of people with the right skill sets is increasing at a rate that is really exciting to see. Um, I think there are obviously challenges trying to make sure that we scale appropriately and that we do what we can with the budget we have, like we've just mentioned. But working at the BBC is an opportunity that I think is still quite unique. Being able to do data science in a domain that has that kind of cultural resonance, you can explain to your mum what you do and why it matters, and that's quite nice sometimes. Um, also that it's public service and it has the public service values to go with that. We are not out there just to make as much money as possible and we are absolutely not out there just to maximise the number of clicks that we get on any particular headline. There is something more about making sure that the the kind of BBC is providing the kind of cultural heart of the, the kind of British society and that isn't a problem that a data scientist finds often. That isn't a kind of a space that that many organizations are able to offer people so i think hiring it's it's tricky and it's tricky to get right and we put a lot of time and effort into making sure our recruitment processes are the best they can be but it is by no means impossible we're getting a lot of you should just tell everybody tell everybody what you just told me or we'll clip that part of the podcast up and send send it as like an interview pack and folk will be like all right i'm sold uh, that's really cool. Yeah, <laughs> it was very good. Um, if I knew anything about data science, I might apply. Um, <laughs> just to touch on data engineers, because I'm not sure what your thoughts are on this, given how long ago we spoke about it. That for a long time, and I've not been in recruitment now for coming up a year, but that when I left, that was like data engineers were the thing that nobody could find, everybody wanted. They all suddenly realised that they needed to get something in the way of like a pipeline. Or a process in that in that space is that is that leveling out a little bit where where you are is that something that you've kind of as a data science team or a data team you've kind of challenged head on as a wider industry i'd say that's definitely one we're not quite there with yet um for example we don't have the master's programs at the same volume we don't have the apprenticeship boot camp kind of early entry point uh, sorted as far as I'm aware yeah. I think yeah, there's a brand new one and I don't have anything to do with them but North Coders who uh, have a very good software course um, have very recently maybe even only one cohort have uh, started a data engineering one and that's a super good step I think yeah I, and I think they're, they're kind of popping up and we're beginning to see more of them but there just still isn't the amount of them to make it easy for organisations to find the, the level of talent and the amount of people with that skill set I think we still really need to invest a lot in training internally given that landscape. So making sure that you are speaking to your software engineers about whether that specialism makes sense to them, making sure that your data scientists where they need to and they don't have data engineering support embedded can do what they need to do to get the job done and to deliver value. So getting those kind of two disciplines to start moving a little bit closer so that they can fill that gap I think that's our kind of short term fix and then long term what I really want to see is that super vibrant ecosystem of all the different training paths and opportunities that you do see right now for data science but broadening out to data engineering and ML engineering we need more of there's maybe a bit of a 
bit of an image problem. I think that I, I wrote this phrase image problem down before, so it must be from when we chatted, but like people almost data science still has quite an allure and maybe software engineers getting it back in a lot of ways because of some of the startups and uh, that are around, but data engineering almost still feels I don't think boring is the right word, but it's not as attractive to some people. But maybe that's just because they don't fully understand it as opposed to being the truth. Yeah, I think it's a kind of general extension of some of the troubles that we have for back-end engineering disciplines in general. Like, not feeling like you're close to the shiny audience-facing bit that's easy to explain and, and can kind of grab people's minds. Working in the back-end and working in data engineering you can feel like you're working in a bit that's too far away from the glamour. And the reality is actually that you get to do such impactful stuff. If you do data engineering and you do it right, you get to be the person that scales the impact of a single item on a single website to millions of customers in real time. You know, it is really exciting if you pitch it right, but we haven't we haven't seen the industry as a whole get that marketing right yet just as i as you've said like it's not shiny enough and particularly that stage of a 17 year old getting marketed a data science undergraduate program they're going for it why are we not getting 17 year olds 18 year olds excited about a data engineering path in the same way just we need more we need more expert marketers in there i think yeah yeah i think so too right i'm super conscious of time i think we'll we'll have to stop it there there was a few other things but we'll, we'll get to that another day but you guys you're, you are hiring just now right so where would be the best place for people to go and we've got a bbc career site adverts will I pop, be popping up there for all sorts of different data vacancies get in touch directly with myself or anyone else in the team and if there's nothing live at the moment we'll make sure and point you in the direction of what's next nice one well thank you so much for joining um, i'm glad we finally got to do it and uh yeah i'm sure i'm sure we'll do it again soon yeah absolutely about time but it was great thanks for you